The FT Weekend Podcast, supported by Ledger, the secure way to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto. From beginner to an expert trader, Ledger has everything you need to buy and grow your crypto securely, all in one place. Reclaim power over your money. Learn more at ledger.com. A month ago, a cookbook landed at my door by the Mexican chef Pati Yinich called Treasures of the Mexican Table. It's heavy. There are 150 recipes in it. On the cover, there's a blonde woman holding a bowl of vegetables and herbs. Avocados, radishes, jalapenos. I know the woman on the cover from her TV show, Patty's Mexican Table. Today. Oh, you saw how tender it is? I didn't even have to make an effort. It's a combination cooking show and travelogue, and Yinich goes all over Mexico to eat, meet people, learn their history, and then teach us their recipes. I'm taking you to the town known as the Cradle of Chilorio in Sinaloa. Anyway, the cookbook. I've been cooking from it a lot. I started with a pork loin in peanut sauce and then moved on to an egg dish from Oaxaca. I made a red chipotle soup from Mexico City. It was very spicy. And then a dish with guajillo peppers and pork butt called chilorio from Sinaloa. I'm putting all these chiles in water here that's already boiling. A couple of bay leaves. I don't know what it is about Mexico and this cookbook and the chef Petiinich that compels me. It's warming and familiar. And something about the physical act of making a complex sauce over two hours, getting elbow deep into this food of a totally new culture, it's kind of been connecting me deeper with my own. Treasures of the Mexican Table has recipes from all 32 states of Mexico. Yinich collected them while making her TV show, which is a three-time James Beard award-winning series, and it airs on PBS. Each recipe tastes different, and it tells a different story of the diversity of Mexican cuisine. The Spanish came, but also the Africans. There were almost 300,000 African slaves that were brought, and there's this third route in Afro-Mexico that hasn't been given the attention it deserves. And it's given so much to Mexico's culture and it's Asian Mexico and the Chinese yeah. and the Filipinos and the Japanese and the Lebanese and the Syrians and the Jews. What I find most interesting about Yinich is that she's a new kind of diplomat. She started her career as a political analyst, but shifted her diplomacy work into food to do it better and to reach more people. This weekend, we look at culture through different lenses. First, Patti Yinich introduces us to her culture and our own through food. Then Jillian Tett, FT columnist and anthropologist, brings us through the biggest issues in the news, from crypto to elections, through the lens of anthropology. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Food is here before we get here, and food will remain here after we leave. And it's these things that connect us all, that open a window into how cultures and people enrich each other. But what are the things that stand the test of time that bring people together? That's Yinich talking to me from her home near Washington, D.C. She moved from Mexico City to the U.S. in 2004, thinking she would be a diplomat. She did a master's degree at Georgetown and started working at a think tank. 
but something didn't feel right. There I was, and I thought, this is my dream job, doing policy analysis of how to help, you know, Mexico, my home country that I missed so much. And here I am in the U.S., my new country, and trying to build bridges. She felt like the articles she was writing were just repeating what had been written before, that only a handful of people would even read them, that her work wasn't helping anyone. Until one day, she was working on a research paper comparing the transition to democracy in Mexico and Peru, and she started talking with a Peruvian colleague. And as I was doing that research, he said, you know, in Peru, we have such an amazing ceviche, and I think it's much better than Mexico's. And I had (laughs) never been to Peru. And that, of course, triggered me to no end and pushed just the really wrong, but it turns out, Right. right button. And I said, what are you talking about? In Mexico, we have the best ever ceviches. And not only one, we have (laughs) all of them. And they're delicious. And I'm pretty sure we got to ceviche first. Ceviche is a seafood dish that's popular in Central and South America. It's made from fresh raw fish that's cured in citrus. And anyway, of course, it turned out that I did so much research and... Um, of course, couldn't prove that Mexico was first. (laughs) (laughs) I went to my boss and I said, look, you asked me for this paper on democracy and here I have a really thorough comparison of Mexico (laughs) and Peru ceviches. Um, And I think this is really what I want to do. So Yenich resigned. She enrolled in cooking school. She started a blog, got a TV show, and 15 years later is one of the most recognized Mexican chefs in America. She was named by the Council of Americas as one of the top five ambassadors for bringing the U.S. and Mexico closer together. And her work, that diplomatic mission through food, it started to get more ambitious. I started with the Mexico I knew with Patty's Mexican Table. And the more the years moved on, I started wanting to go to the Mexico that I didn't know. And the more challenging to understand Mexico, I started with the nice and sweet, you know, Mexico City and Puebla and Oaxaca and then Michoacán and then the Baja, eh, Norte and Sur, where the border in Tijuana is. Mm -hmm. And then El Chapo Land in Sinaloa. I was like, everybody's talking about narcos and the cartel. I know so many Sinaloan families that are... Mm -hmm in the tomato growing business and the shrimp farming business, and they feed Mexico and the U.S. And I kept being attracted to the more difficult, challenging themes. And I felt this growing responsibility of not only going to Mexico to eat tacos, but to really come to tell the stories of, you know, what's going on and what's not being heard. So let's talk about your cookbook. It has recipes from each of the 32 states in Mexico. And Patty, I have to say, I was like drawn to this cookbook. I felt like it was like I summoned to it. Like it's it kind of, it has like soul. And the other day I had a pork loin in my freezer and I had <laughs> some friends coming for dinner and I'd never made pork loin before. And you had a million pork recipes, which was amazing. <laughs> And um, I made the pork loin with peanut sauce, the encacahuatado. Is that right? That's beautiful. Yes. Speak more Spanish to me, please. Of course, I chose, okay, I chose the hardest pronunciation uh, recipe to do. And it was full of spices and peanuts and this thick sauce. And it felt very, like, rewarding to make. And it was delicious. And it didn't taste like what I think of as (laughs) traditional Mexican food. It tasted almost like a curry. Yeah. And what I (laughs) like so much about this cookbook is that 
It shows that Mexico isn't just this one monolith culture. Um, first of all, can you tell me about that pork recipe? And second of all, can you tell me why that was important <laughs> for you to do this cookbook? Of course, of course. <laughs> I wanted to have a cookbook that could do exactly that, to open up a window into shining a light into how Mexico is so much diverse and rich and not only regionally, there's not only regions, like culinary regions that are attached to each state, mm. there's micro regions right. and regions that intersect between states. It's so complex, but there's also the historical period, but... I think I, I was trying to convey this, that with that pork loin recipe that you made of the encacahuatado sauce. Encacahuatado sauce. Encacahuatado. <laughs> and it is a sauce that it is a kind of mole sauce. Mm, and when people think about mole, they only think about that chocolate-based uh, mole sauce from Puebla. Right. There's also one in Oaxaca. But there's moles, like it's so good that you said the curry because there's moles in Mexico, like curries in India. Mm -hmm. And they all share these secrets of having ingredients added in layers with patience and time. And I bet you that sauce wasn't difficult to make. It has a handful of ingredients. Yeah. It wasn't hard Tell to Tell me make. about your experience making it. Well, so I it looked scary, <laughs> the recipe, because it was <laughs> it was just like um using a blender to grind peanuts and to hydrate these peppers that I had. And there were just sort of steps that I hadn't done before and I didn't yeah. know the culture of it. You know, a lot of times when I experiment with food, it's with the cultures that I Armenian, my mom's Armenian, my dad's Greek with those cultures. So I understand a little what it's supposed to be like. Yeah. And this one, I just didn't know what was going to come out. Yeah. And I love what you're saying about this because I feel people find Mexican food and cooking and overall a food that is not a food that they know. These ingredients you don't know, these process you, you don't know. But once you rehydrate a chile, it's second nature. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's, it's you know, easy. once you toast and grind peanuts, you know, you know. And so every single recipe in this book is a beloved recipe that defines a place and that people of, it may be a tiny little town like Mocorito in Sinaloa, mm -hmm. or it can be a region like northern Mexico with the flour tortillas, mm -hmm. or the encacahuatado, which you find many versions of in Mexico. All of these recipes are family-oriented, homemade, and it's an extension of someone's home. That feeling that these recipes could connect me in New York to someone's great-grandmother in Sinaloa just by following steps, that I can get some sense from it of their family. That's really what has felt most familiar to me and compelling to me about learning Mexican culture and food over this month. My culture's food is also an extension of heritage and home. And I imagine so is yours. There is a paradox here in the way we see Mexico from the United States. We love Mexican food and travel. We love tacos. We love margaritas. We love Cancun. But that's very different from America's relationship with Mexico politically. When do we beat Mexico at the border? They're laughing at us, at our stupidity. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. And that's not even getting into the in-between. 
people and places that are both Mexican and American. The U.S. population is almost 19% Hispanic, and the majority are Mexican. We also have more Spanish speakers here than anywhere in the world other than Mexico. 13% of Americans speak Spanish at home. And that border that America shares with Mexico, it's about 2,000 miles long. Along it live millions of people, many of whom cross it weekly or even daily. They cross it to shop, to see their grandparents, even to go to school. Yinich's most recent TV project is a two-part series called La Frontera, The Border. Patty, I want to ask you about The Border. Um, you did this beautiful documentary for PBS called La Frontera, and yeah. you went back and forth across the border. And one thing I found pretty moving about it is that for probably the most politicized place in America, it really seemed like the conflict is not at the border, like, actually, that's where you find the most fellowship. I have been thinking, as I've been looking forward to interviewing you, is um, the relationship that Americans have with Mexico. And it feels like in some ways we are obsessed, right? Everyone I know is going to Mexico City on vacation. Some are moving there. But I also see that a lot of Americans don't respect Mexican people who live here. You know, a lot of New York's workforce is Mexican, and I find they're often not treated as equals. How do you feel when you see Americans' perception of Mexico and Mexican people? Yeah, I love everything that you're saying so much and how you started with saying that there's this fellowship at the border and these culture that they've created and this was the thing that stood at me the most because I've never felt more comfortable in my life like that than at the border. Mm. You can be whatever you are. You don't need to explain your accent. People there have to swim through their identities all the time. Speak English, speak Spanish, and speak other things. Mexico and the U.S. are so, and I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, symbiotic. But most people don't know. If you stand in Laredo and you look at the trade that goes in the trucking industry every second and how much we depend on resources and manufacturing and how many Americans, this is the untold story that my friend Alfredo Corchado, who's a journalist who was a, very kind to appear in the first episode of La Frontera yes, with me. Yes, he was great. He said, that's the other side of, side of the coin, Patty. Many people talk about the Mexicans that want to be in the U.S. and that are trying to come to the U.S. Nobody talks about all the Americans that have second homes in Mexico, that do business mm -hmm. in Mexico, that live in Mexico, but nobody talks about all those things. Yeah. The journalist who was on La Frontera with you that you were speaking of, he said that the feeling in his community, and he was on the Juarez-El Paso border, was like, I'm not going to treat you as the other because we're all the other. Yeah. And um, I imagine that that's sort of a relief. <laughs> that's sort of a nice yes. feeling to have community-wise. Oh my gosh, I so love that you held on to that, Laila as demonized as the borderlands are and as hard to live in the borderlands, people that come from the borderlands always 
want to go back because there's no yeah. place like the borderlands mm-hmm. the family the bonds the how people help each other the access that you have to not only these two worlds but this third dimension there's just something very raw and deep and human about a place that is so deeply dehumanized patty i have one more quick question for you which is just What are you cooking right now? It's kind of a weird time. We have this variant. People don't know how much to be inside. They're worried that whatever. What's what should we cook? I think condiments will save the day. Okay. Salsa matcha, salsas, pickled onions. Mm-hmm. Um, the salsa matcha in my book is to die for, Lila. You okay. really have to make it. It's a combination of nuts and some chilies and garlic and olive oil. And you can spoon it on top of avocado toast, but you can also spoon it on top of like fresh fruit and ice cream. Mm. And that's the beauty about Mexican condiments. Pickled onions and chilies, they will ramp up any salad, any tuna salad, any sandwich. So I think condiments and sauces like that, you can make big batches of. Okay. And they will just help you beautify anything that you can quickly whip up. Patty, thank you so much for being on the show. This was such a joy. Thank you, Lila. I've put Patty's recipe for salsa matcha in the show notes. Jillian Tett was one of the few people who saw the 2008 financial crisis coming, years before anyone else. It started at this economic conference in 2005, at a thing called the European Securitization Forum down on the French Riviera, which was basically a gigantic tribal gathering of the investment banking tribe, um, the finance geeks. Jillian is an FT columnist and chair of our US editorial board. But she's also an anthropologist. She thinks in terms of tribes, whether you're on the French Riviera or somewhere much more remote. She got her PhD studying Tajik wedding rituals in the Hindu Kush on the border of Tajikistan and Afghanistan. Anthropology is all about studying human patterns of behavior and cultural norms. And at this curious gathering of global finance types, she could see that the culture was heading towards a dark place. By looking at all the messages incorporated in the investment banking rituals, I could see back in 2005, many of the seeds of the financial crisis and the things that were going so badly wrong in finance. At this conference, Jillian says it wasn't about what was being discussed. It was more about what wasn't. She was looking for what anthropologists call the social silence. All of the public debate in finance at the time was around the equity market and around the, sometimes the foreign exchange market. But there was this crashing social silence back then around what was happening in credit derivatives and derivatives. Derivatives in the mortgage market were the main cause of the 2008 crash. And in the years leading up, Jillian wrote about it in the FT a lot. It made her slightly unpopular because people just didn't want to see it. And, you know, the failing of Wall Street before 2008 was to have an outsider's perspective on what they were doing be taken seriously. Um, And so when critics like myself came in and said, a lot of this securitization stuff is very dangerous, we were poo-pooed. Exactly the same problem is haunting the leaders of Silicon Valley today and is frankly haunting many areas of modern society. 
History remembers Jillian as one of the few reporters that predicted the crash, as someone who saw something many others didn't. Her work does that, and partially it's because of her training. She's used anthropology in the years since to explore things like the rise of Donald Trump and cryptocurrency and why some people refuse to wear a mask. I don't know if you took an intro to anthropology course in university. I remember in mine learning that everything is a cultural construct and it blew my mind. At what age you're considered an adult, whether slurping your food is an insult or a sign of respect, whether you kiss or shake hands when you greet, there are matriarchal cultures where women have the power. It was one of those moments where you think, oh, and everything sort of gets connected into this bigger systemic web. And the key thing to understand about culture, and I can't stress this strongly enough, is that our culture doesn't exist like a Tupperware box, whereby it's fixed and closed and bounded, and you put a lid on it, and you can stack up different cultures on top of each other in a kind of hierarchy of value. Mm -hmm. Culture is more like a river. It's constantly moving and changing, and there's new streams coming in. Jillian has explored this in her new book. It's called Anthrovision. It's an argument for using anthropology to look at business and life. And it's really an attempt to answer the question of why would anyone bother with cultural anthropology in an age that's drowning in admiration for artificial intelligence, all these quantitative sciences. And essentially, I wanted to explain to people that looking at human culture, trying to understand behavior and context, looking at all the cultural assumptions that shape us so deeply that we tend to ignore. We need to embrace that right now. Okay, so according to Jillian, here are the three steps you need to take to start thinking like an anthropologist. The first step of it is to immerse yourself, even briefly, in the minds of lives of people who think differently from you. Right. And you do that because the second step is you don't just try and understand others to get empathy from another point of view. You do that because you know that jumping out of your world is the single best way to understand yourself. Because the Chinese have a great proverb, a fish can't see water. None of us can see the cultural assumptions that shape us unless we periodically go swim with other fish and look back at our own water. And when you do that, you get the third big step, which is to start looking not just at the parts of our world that we actively talk about, the noise, but also the social silence, the bits of our world that are so familiar or so taboo, or so embarrassing, or that so seem so boring, that we just ignore. But they're often absolutely crucial. Yeah. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that process with like a concrete example. You know, like when you're getting to know a new world, whether that be bankers or tech bros or the Davos tribe or uh, sort of the sustainability world, what do you do to immerse yourself in it? You could use that mindset to say, look at an issue which plagues every single parent I know, which is what do we do about our teenagers being addicted to our cell phones? Sure, yeah. Now, that's an issue which has provoked a lot of debate in recent years, and people usually study it by looking at the noise in the system, i.e. looking at the cell phone, cell phone technology, all the algorithms which make cell phones so addictive, etc., mm -hmm. etc. What an anthropologist has done is she went in and observed teenagers in their natural setting in America, middle-class suburban America, for a couple of years. Essentially, if you go back 50, 100 years, teenagers in America had a lot of freedom to roam physically. Mm -hmm. They could go to the shopping mall. They cycled to school. 
They could congregate with their friends on the streets. They could test the boundaries, explore the world, congregate spontaneously um, without parents watching. Today, even before lockdown, teenagers in suburban America were being driven around everywhere by parents. They were being monitored. They weren't allowed to just wander vaguely out on the streets by themselves because of fear of stranger danger. And so the only place that they can roam spontaneously, collide with the unexpected and congregate without parents watching was often cyberspace. That's so true. So is it any wonder that they all want to go into cyberspace to do that? And of course, lockdown has made it 10 times worse. Another example is Donald Trump, how much he appealed to some voters during the 2016 presidential election. And when Trump did his political rallies, he did so borrowing almost completely the performative style of the wrestling ring, which he had been steeped in for many years, Mm -hmm. and which actually many parts of the electoral base had gotten to know Trump best through the wrestling ring um, on television initially. So all of the stage mocked combat, the name calling, things like Little Mark Rubio or Crooked Hillary, those kind of targets that whipped up manufactured aggression, that appealing to the crowd, all of that came straight from the wrestling ring. And it was familiar to people. It was familiar to people who had been watching wrestling. Right. It was completely unrecognizable to people who had not. Mm. There's been times when I've forgotten my anthropology in the run-up to the Brexit vote. I completely forgot my anthropology. And I assumed that because I thought personally that Brexit was a bad idea, I failed to see that my vision was clouded by the fact that I was, was and am part of the globalized elite and my mindset is not the same as other people. I'd forgotten to listen and to humbly try and put myself in the perspective of, of others. So I got the Brexit thing completely wrong. Mm. After that, I then tried to go back to my roots and act like an anthropologist. And by that, I mean travel around America during the 2016 election campaign and actually listen to people without preconceptions, try and observe what people said and what they didn't say, try to watch body language try to ask open-ended questions. These are all the tools of anthropology. Um, And that's one set of um, approaches that helped me to foresee the likelihood that Donald Trump would win the 2016 election. Gillian, I would love to talk through with you some of the things that people are concerned about now and how we can maybe see them through an anthropological lens. I'm curious if you can help me make sense of of crypto and NFTs from this context, just culturally. Like there's been so much written about it and so many explainers about it, but kind of from the outside, they feel sort of culty. There's something happening culturally that's making this so appealing. Well, if you ever needed an example, it shows why it pays to combine anthropology with economics to make sense of finance. <laughs> I'd argue that, you know, crypto um, is exactly an example which we should all be embracing and looking at because, yeah. you know, the point about crypto is if you want to understand what's happening, you can't just look at it in terms of classic economic models of value or even finance. You need to look at things like trust. Mm-hmm. What and how do people trust? Just a quick refresher for anyone who needs it. Cryptocurrencies are digital currencies based on blockchain technology. So they're kind of everywhere and nowhere. People hold them and mine them in their computers around the world. So they're not centralized in a bank and they're theoretically more protected from government interference. It's sort of anti-establishment. 
you know, traditionally anthropologists used to say that there were two types of trust that glued society together. There was either horizontal peer-to-peer trust or there was vertical trust, which was trust in leaders or institutions. The former used to only operate in small face-to-face communities. The latter was what came into play when you had bigger societal groups. Mm -hmm. Now, the rise of digital has created a third type of trust, which is distributed trust. Mm. Um, Massive peer-to-peer trust-based mechanisms created through digital platforms. And crypto basically relies on this. Mm. You know, when you have all of these ways of creating consensus through shared ledgers, essentially you're creating trust on a massive scale in a peer-to-peer fashion. Like a web. Exactly. But without centralized hierarchies providing the basis for trust. Julian says it's worth looking at how the idea of value has changed. Last year, the meme stock was born when shares for GameStop, the struggling gaming company from your local mall, caught fire on Reddit and the price skyrocketed just because of Reddit. Reddit users suddenly realized they could drive up value just by making something go viral. And maybe that in itself, that risk, the thrill, the chance of getting rich quick, that's more valuable to this culture than investing in the S&P 500. You have to look at things like social identity and groups and how things like meme culture, which grown-up economists and financiers tend to dismiss as irrelevant, how and why that actually matters enormously in terms of creating value for people or perceived value in these networks. You have to look at questions about what is value. You know, someone investing in crypto may have a different sense of value and, you know, worth from someone getting fiat currency. Right. The last one I wanted to ask you about, Jillian, is just, um, is like how things get chosen in culture as cool or like how some things represent having good taste. There's such a mechanism behind, even on the podcast, sort of like what everybody's talking about or, you know, what seems to sort of float up in the cultural zeitgeist. And I'm curious how we can think about that. There's a wonderful French intellectual called Pierre Bourdieu, who shaped my thinking very deeply when I was an academic, who argued that the way that the elite stays in power is not just by controlling economic capital, i.e. money. Mm -hmm. It's also by shaping cultural capital, i.e. what the cultural aspects of our world that we designate as desirable. And that alongside social capital, i.e. who has political and social networks that matter, is what enables people to essentially not just have power, express power, but replicate it through the ages. Mm. And cultural capital is something which is much harder to define than, say, economic capital, but it's really, really important. And what's ironic, but also fascinating, is that the people who have cultural capital are not usually exactly the same as the people who have economic capital. Mm. It kind of overlaps, but it's not identical. Right. But often what you have is this kind of yo-yoing effect of people who have economic capital wanting to get cultural capital (laughs) and people who have cultural capital kind of want to get economic capital, i.e. get paid for being cool. Mm -hmm. In many ways, the weak NFT is one gigantic ritualistic device for turning economic capital into cultural capital (laughs) and back and forth. That's true. If you think about it, you know, it's basically... (laughs) You know, people who have loads of money want to be cool by knowing what's the latest cool thing to listen to or watch or what's the best way to decorate your home or how to spend it. Right. Go back to one of our core products. (laughs) But on the more serious note, you know, how we designate something as cool is part of the social process 
that creates human drives, that enables power structures to be replicated, and so on and so on. It makes me think of um, how many of the financial elite are on the boards of our of our favorite New York museums. Well, that is part of it, to be honest. And you could, again, you can say, you know, one of the first things that someone who's had economic success does usually is start to collect paintings, get on the borders of art museums. Another thing that happens is that children who are being acculturated into the language of power are taught not just, you know, to go to business school and get an MBA, but to know how to talk about art and exhibit all of the cultural signs and signaling devices that indicate that they're part of this network of the elite. And then, of course, they hang out with people who are like them and that forms social capital. So it goes hand in hand. And there's two ways to look at this. You can either look at it and get incredibly angry and say this is disgusting, or you can say this is part of the fundamental trait of being human. It's something that happens in any society, in any situation. Let's recognize it. Let's try to find ways to ameliorate the worst of the power imbalances here and both glory and marvel and laugh at the nature of being human. Jillian, this was fascinating. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for listening. And if anyone's listening who's got a kid who wants to study anthropology at college, I've often been asked, will my kid ever find a job? I hope my book convinces you that yes, they can find a job if they want to study anthropology instead of accounting. Let them do it. I love it. Yes, we're a pro-anthropology world. <laughs> Thanks, Julian. Thank you. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast. Next week, we are going mudlarking on the Thames River with Joe Ellison. It's going to be awesome. Joe is the editor of How to Spend It, and I'm excited for you to meet her. We'll also explore why we play games and the history of games and how they've changed over time with our gaming critic, Tom Faber. We really love hearing from you, and we read everything you send us. You can contact me in a few ways. By email, we're at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. I ask a lot of questions that feed into the podcast on Instagram. If you want to explore the FT, I have a bunch of great offers for podcast listeners like 50% off a digital subscription and a $1 month-long trial and a great print FT weekend deal. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Make sure to use that link. It's in the show notes as are links to everything mentioned today. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and this is my team. Katya Kumkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith and Josh Gabbert-Doyen are our assistant producers. Breen Turner is our sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley, Manuela Saragossa, and Topher Forges are our executive producers. And we have editorial direction from Renee Kaplan. Thank you as ever for listening, and we'll find each other again next week. As the world changes, so does the tech we need to secure what is important to us. And if you own crypto assets, you need a safe place to store your funds. At Ledger, we provide a secure and straightforward way to buy, exchange and grow your crypto. Whether you're an expert trader or just starting on your crypto journey, Ledger has everything you need all in one place. Ledger, the place to buy and grow your crypto securely. Reclaim power over your money. Learn more at ledger.com.